This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Longtime listeners of the Insecurities Podcast know that Kurt and I are supported by the Practicing Law Institute in the content and production of our podcast. PLI continues to provide attorneys, accountants, and professionals with breaking news and detailed analysis regarding the ever-changing landscape in the legal and finance world. On today's episode, we are joined again by our good friend, George Wilson, the director of PLI's SEC Institute, to discuss current developments in accounting, finance, and the law, as well as look ahead to the impacts of a new administration in 2021 and beyond. This podcast is being released in tandem with the SECI's quarterly newsletter for February 2021, and we dive deep on many topics covered in the newsletter today on Insecurities. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast helping you stay current on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's good to be with you, Chris. We've got a great show lined up. We're going to cover important developments from the SEC and PCAOB. So, Chris, you'll get to talk about accounting for a change. Excellent. Uh, we'll also discuss recent ESG reporting developments. I'm super excited about this episode because, as you mentioned up top, Chris, we are welcoming back an old friend of the show, George Wilson. George is a director at PLI's SEC Institute, where he teaches workshops on a variety of SEC and financial accounting topics. George also pens the SEC Institute's quarterly newsletter. And I don't know, most, most importantly, George is the only three-time guest here on Insecurities. Glutton for punishment. Well, <laughs> it, it, it is an honor, gentlemen. <laughs> A treat to be here again. Glad to have you. If, if you can't get enough of George, uh, go back and check out episodes 7 and 19 to catch up on the past conversations. Uh, George, we're delighted to have you. I want to formally welcome you back again to Insecurities. Thank you both very much. As I said, it is an absolute delight to be here again and dive into all these intricate and evolving topics. Yeah, it's going to be a good one. Before we get into it, a quick programming note. As I mentioned, George is a director at PLI's SEC Institute, or SECI. Listeners will remember, of course, that the SECI provides educational materials and programs on SEC reporting, compliance, and accounting issues. Find them online at pli.edu slash programs slash SECI. The SECI also circulates a helpful quarterly newsletter that highlights important SEC, FASB, and PCAOB. Uh, sorry, there I go again with the acronym BINGO. That's Financial Accounting Standards Board, the ding, FASB ding, ding. or FASB, and Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, that's the PCAOB. Correct again. The quarterly newsletter highlights important SEC, FASB, and PCAOB developments and other regulatory issues that practitioners should keep in mind. And as you mentioned, Chris, coincidentally, the SECI's March 2021 quarterly newsletter comes out today, February 25th. Funny how that worked out. We like to check in with George a couple times a year to see what issues the SECI is focusing on, and we're going to pick up some of those topics today. Chris, why don't you kick us off? 
we've selected a few items from the newsletter that we think are most pressing for our listeners. Uh, first off, we want to revisit that ever-present discussion of COVID-19. Uh, we've talked in prior episodes about the changing disclosure landscape, so I want to check in with George on new developments and thoughts there. Also, one of the other topics, Kurt, you and I have touched on briefly in prior episodes, the SEC under the Biden administration. You know, we're seeing some names getting tossed around. And depending on the way that the Senate moves forward, we may have some confirmed individuals by the time this this episode airs. Uh, so please uh, excuse any title changes that we should have made, but we're unable to prior to uh, pre-recording this. Also, we're going to touch on you know recent rules and guidance that are both being developed and implemented related to disclosures in the management's discussion and analysis segment of financial reports, as well as a hot button topic in SPACs, special purpose acquisition companies. And then finally, uh, we'll talk about the PCAOB and, and where we stand here in early 2021. Uh, we've had some leadership changes with the PCAOB, as well as uh, some good discussions going on uh, that PLI has helped summarize in this newsletter. So looking forward to diving in on those topics with you, George, today. George, it, it seems like forever ago when we had our first conversation with you back in episode seven. I remember distinctly looking down at my phone while we were recording to see that the NCAA had canceled the March Madness tournament oh. back when we were uh, first recording. Uh, again, it has been forever, uh, I think, since that original original <laughs> recording time in terms of the COVID-19 <laughs> pandemic. And one of the things we've seen the commission and other accounting and, and legal uh, leaders come out with is their response to disclosures and other requirements under the COVID-19 pandemic. So uh, on episode 19, we actually spoke about the SEC's focus on, quote, continued importance of high-quality financial reporting for investors in light of COVID-19, end quote. want to kind of touch base with you here, George, in early 2021 and say, you know, where do you think we are in terms of the long-tailed efforts of disclosure related to the pandemic? I remember talking and hearing about the NCAA tournament and thinking at that point in time, holy cow, we don't really know what's going to happen. And I, I think to a degree, we're still in that kind of a place. There's a significant amount of uncertainty. I think what's helpful, though, is the accounting guidance for disclosures and the accounting impact of the pandemic is probably a little more settled in. We're all dealing with issues like impairments, uh, liquidity disclosures, and the financial statements. Those are pretty well in place. I think the thing to remember there is that even if you don't have an impairment now, given the uncertainty and how long this will last, how will the tail work. Don't be afraid to think about future impairments and the forward-looking disclosures, mm -hmm. which more or less dovetails with what we're going to talk about in the outside the financial statement parts of a periodic report, specifically MDNA. And the two disclosure guidance topics that the SEC put together, topic 9 and 9A, while they're principles-based, I think give you a good, thoughtful foundation to think about what investors are going to need to know. So I, I think the guidance is reasonably well evolved. There are a number of great disclosure examples out there that you can bridge to and kind of build on. You know, it's always a good idea to stand on the shoulders of those who come before us with these kinds of disclosures. No reason to recreate the wheel. The most important part of this is tailor it to your business. Make sure it's specific. So while that's all fairly general, I think that's where we are today with those disclosures. And I think we've got a reasonably robust framework to help us through this period end and probably next quarter end. And 
I, I think this is something to be very careful with. One of the things to, to think about, too, from a disclosure perspective going forward is comparability in future periods. You know, I am hopeful that someday we will get to a state of normalcy that at least, you know, is is relatively uh, similar to where we were prior to, to February of, of 2020. But we'll be kind of reporting on on these periods, right? These reporting periods for for many, many future reporting periods to come. So they'll be, you know, next year uh, as, as 10Ks look back at performance year over year during the earnings season as well. So uh, always reach out to your your local accountant to make sure that your uh, your disclosures are appropriate. Yes. Uh, oh, great shameless. advice. Great it, advice. Shameless plug. <laughs> it, is, it is great advice. And if for no other reason, because we've already seen one example of a public company getting into some trouble with the SEC because of disclosures relating to the COVID-19 pandemic. In December, the SEC announced its first enforcement action charging a public company, the Cheesecake Factory, for misleading investors about the financial effects of the pandemic. Now, I, I want to be clear here. The SEC SEC has suspended trading in dozens of issuers who made inaccurate or misleading statements about COVID-19, like representations that the company was developing rapid blood tests or vaccines, or that the company had capability to manufacture or distribute PPE. Uh, and some of those trading suspensions ultimately led to enforcement action. But that's not what we're talking about with Cheesecake Factory. You know, they didn't promise to develop a rapid finger prick test or add N95 masks to their hefty menu. Instead, they are alleged to have made misleading disclosures about the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the company's business operations and financial condition. So with that background, George, you know the case well. What elements of the case should our listeners focus on? And should we expect to see more cases like this? To answer the second question first, I think yes. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> you need to be very careful. And I think one of the interesting aspects of this case is the timing. They made sure they got it done in December. Mm. And from my perspective, that sends up a message, a, a pretty significant message to everybody out there. Don't try to whitewash the impact of the pandemic on your business. The background of the case is kind of a classic. You didn't tell everybody the whole story situation. Cheesecake Factory filed an 8K, and in the 8K, they actually said that they had always had a strong off-premise model and that their restaurants had been able to pivot to the off-premise model and were operating, quote, sustainably. Hmm. And that was in an 8K. That gives you a, a sense of things are going okay. What they didn't tell the world and what came out later was that before they filed the 8K, they had actually informed the landlords of all their facilities that they would not be paying their April rent. <laughs> and the kind of, <laughs> here's the, the proof that's in the pudding they had also been trying to raise capital and in discussions with private equity investors and lenders told them that they had 16 weeks of cash on hand and that after that they would need definitely need more capital yeah. so how can you say we're operating sustainably and then have all that stuff bubble up i think one of the really fascinating aspects of the case is that apparently one of the landlords told the press about the letter from Cheesecake Factory. And that's how it sort of bubbled up into visibility. So I, I think the message is pretty clear for people in the reporting world. Don't 
tell different stories, tell the whole story to your investors and anybody else you're seeking to raise capital from or with. But I think the message is pretty clear there. And I yes, I definitely think there will be more cases like this because there will be people who try to cover up how bad the situation is, especially if we have another significant bubble of a different variant or something like that. And those are the things we need to be thoughtful about. But I do like the timing. It's interesting. They, they paid a, I would call it a fine, not a big fine, but it seems like they wanted to get this one done so they could send the message before calendar year end. I would agree with you. It, it feels more like a message case than a punish the issuer kind of case. I mean, you get back to the old debate about the efficacy of you know meeting out heavy penalties, um, particularly for a company that appears to be suffering some financial difficulty. And here, you know, I don't think the penalty is a death knell by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, so I agree with you, George. I think this was more about the message. We want to pivot and talk a little bit about the state of the SEC or some developments at the SEC. But first, sort of a, a side note, while we're talking about enforcement and because this show can't be all about accounting, Chris, two quick things on on, uh, on SEC enforcement. Uh, we're going to come around and talk a little bit about the pending nomination for a new SEC chair, which could, of course, impact the enforcement division. Um, but first, a quick update from the office of the acting chair. So a couple things have happened in recent weeks that are noteworthy from an enforcement standpoint. The first is that the acting chair has delegated to the enforcement staff the authority to open formal orders of investigation and issue subpoenas for documents and testimony. This is a little bit of a political football. When we have uh, Democrats in the big chair over at the SEC, they like to delegate this authority to the staff. And when we have Republicans in the big chair, they like to take that authority away and leave it to the the directors of enforcement to approve form formal orders and subpoenas. What I'm reading people saying this could mean is that we're going to be looking at a more aggressive SEC enforcement division. I think that's probably right, regardless of who has the authority to issue formal orders and subpoenas. But it, it's just sort of a noted or a noteworthy um, about face from the last administration. Uh, so I, I think it's I think it's significant. I think it's something to pay attention to. I think it has the potential to impact the number of enforcement actions we're going to see. The other thing I'll I'll mention, and this is is really kind of hot off the presses, was another action out of the office of the acting chair where they have drawn a line between negotiating uh, Wixie waivers, well-known seasoned issuer waivers for companies that have been charged with securities law violations and the negotiation of the terms of a settlement in an SEC enforcement proceeding. Essentially, what the acting chair is saying is that if you are a defendant in an SEC enforcement action, you may no longer negotiate a waiver as part of the terms of your settlement. Your settlement cannot be contingent on the SEC granting the waiver. They've completely split it up. So if you want to talk about your Wixie waiver, you go to Corp Fin. If you want to talk about the terms of your settlement, you go to the division of enforcement, but you don't try to bundle those things together. Again, this is sort of returning to the way things were several years ago uh, during uh, Chairman Clayton's tenure. He said, this is getting a little bit too difficult to kind of run these things in parallel paths, and I want to allow defendants to 
to smash them together and negotiate everything at once. I think what that did was change the the tenor or uh, nature of settlement negotiations. And so acting chair Heron Lee has said, nope, we're going to split it up again. So a couple of developments uh, relating to enforcement that I wanted to throw in there. Chris or George, I don't know if you have reactions to those or, or thoughts on how that might impact the division's work. Well, I loved the way you characterized it as a bit of a political football, because of course, in the previous administration's SEC, that and that subpoena power had been delegated to all the different officials in enforcement. I think there are 36 of them right now. Mm-hmm. And the Republican administration sort of pulled it back. Let me ask you, because you're there on the front lines with enforcement issues, do you think this will speed up enforcement cases, make them proceed more quickly? It has the potential to. If you talk to guys like Bill McLucas over at Wilmer Hale, who was the longest serving director of the Division of Enforcement, he'll say correctly that getting a subpoena has never been a problem. You know, it's not that difficult to go up to the director of enforcement and get the sign off from her or his office. That That's not wrong. I think what it does is it adds some administrative uh, red tape or extra work, right? I mean, the, the question is, do you want the director or directors of enforcement to have to think about any number of subpoenas that might be issued in connection with, uh, you know, we're now getting 850, 875 enforcement actions every year. Like, that's a lot to have to, to, have to think about and sign off on. So, it, uh, to me, it makes sense to delegate that authority to um, to some folks farther down the chain on the enforcement staff. I've never noticed, though, that when that, that sub-delegation is in effect, I haven't seen a huge uptick in the number of cases. Uh, I think it just kind of helps things run a little bit more smoothly and a little bit more quickly for the staff. I'd agree. And I think the takeaway for me is, as I look at kind of this changing football position on the field, is that we're still going to have the same amount of rigor and focus on enforcement cases. We're not asking junior people at the SEC to now make uh, you know senior decisions. The wheels are only going to be a little bit easier to get greased to move things forward instead of any sea change in the way they are. And I don't know how to how to better encapsulate a, a football analogy than to ask who's going to be the Tom Brady that comes back and helps stand up this program. Is, is Harvey Pitt going to come out of retirement to win his seventh? I don't know. Oh, don't know man. what what to think of from the SEC commission. We're looking for a Gronk. You know, all that, we need yeah, is a who, hero. We need a Gronk. We need a guy who's been retired for two years, was That's in right. the one hundred greatest, and then comes back and scores mm-hmm. touchdown. Yeah, one other, and, and Kurt, it's it's good that you note some of the real timely things we've seen in the past few days prior to recording this episode. There's a lot going on in the markets and a lot going on in terms of folks looking to regulators for guidance, which is is actually a good thing to some degree. But we've seen a lot of these, you know, meme stocks is, is the shorthand that we'll use to describe a lot of these issues. Basically, the, uh, you know, market moving related to, you know, the socialization of content and uh, a driving force of, of folks on, on programs like Reddit and other social media. Uh, the SEC has actually issued a interesting um, (laughs) sample letter from the Division of Corporate Finance, and I want to get the title right, so I'll read it verbatim. The sample letter to companies regarding securities offerings during times of extreme price volatility. Uh, Obviously, there have been a a handful of stocks, and I'm sure there'll be many more that have gone both through the roof and and through the basement uh, in the past few weeks here in early 2021. 
I don't, I don't know how I feel about kind of the, the, the division of corporate finance issuing this kind of sample letter. Uh, it seems to be a little bit uh, premature in terms of how fast this information is moving. But I know, George, you've looked into this in detail uh, based on what CorpFin's put out there. What are your thoughts on this whole meme stock and, and volatility focus? This is not a new thing with all of the volatility with certain stocks in recent weeks. Several months ago, you might remember Kodak had a big jump in their stock price based on some news about a big government contract. And when their price went up, and the same thing happened with Hertz. Hertz had an unusually large yeah, bump in their price. Announcing a bankruptcy, right? And then uh, more shares were sold at a higher price. Yeah. And if you're management of the company and you're desperately in need of capital, you might think to yourself, gosh, my share price is up. It's time to sell stock. But if that price is more or less artificially inflated, and who knows whether that's artificial or not, but but it's up significantly for reasons that look a little mysterious, and you decide to go out and sell stock, well, that sale probably creates significant risks for the people who buy at that price, because if it goes down to its historical level, they'll lose a lot of money. And that's the idea. Of, you know, we used to call these letters Dear CFO Letters, because they always started out Dear CFO. Mm-hmm. We haven't seen one of these in a long time. I think the advantage they have is that they're very quick. They're easy to put up. And I suspect they're doing this because they've been issuing comment letters to companies who've been trying to raise capital at this point in time when their price has been bumped up. Uh, This one's called a Dear Issuer Letter. So it's a a different name, but the same basic phenomenon. And I, I think the idea here is you need to warn people about that risk. And that's kind of the content of the letter. But We'll see. It's been interesting to watch the market and all the crazy stuff. And of course, we'll see investigations and other kinds of Mm -hmm. activities to see if there really has been any kind of manipulation here. It's an interesting development. I think, again, I always go back to enforcement. Now, you know, this uh, Dear Issuer letter, of course, came out of Corp Fin, but I think the SEC uh, Enforcement Division is going to be looking at companies that made at-the-market offerings during the the time of uh, extreme volatility, particularly when the when stock prices were spiking. And some of this is market driven. In you know, 2020, there were more uh, shelf registration filings than in any other year in, in history. So there are an awful lot of public companies out there with stock on the shelf that they are ready to issue through an at the market offering. And I mean, you're right, George, are there circumstances where they, they might want to take advantage of a spiking price in order to increase or maximize the, the capitalization? And if so, I think the SEC is well within its rights, uh, and in particular, the um, Division of Enforcement to ask, like, why, why did you do it then? Mm-hmm. What, what changed about your company? Was there you know, anything different about your operations or your outlook? No? Okay. So, you were just sort of taking advantage of the moment. I mean, that's, that's potentially problematic. I agree. I agree. As we've talked about on prior episodes, uh, the Biden administration is looking to bring in its own leadership to to the SEC and and handle these uh, <laughs> these problems. They probably didn't foresee when they were vetting folks back in November and December to serve in these roles as right. <laughs> as January and February have ch- kind of changed the game here. But uh, Gary Gensler has been named as as President Biden's pick to to serve as chairman of the SEC. You know, Kurt, we've we've been talking about uh, Mr. Gensler uh, a little bit on our prior episodes, mm-hmm. but I actually haven't pointed out the best part of his CV that I think makes him qualified for this oh, job. Do tell. He was a senior advisor to the famous Senator Paul Sarbanes. 
during the early 2000s and was instrumental in the passage of, Kurt, I know your favorite uh, regulatory <laughs> act, the Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002. So obviously, we always joke about legal and accounting here on the podcast. I think he's great just because he's been involved with the Sox developments. But George, I'm interested in what your take is in, in, in Mr. Gensler taking over potentially as chairman to, to be confirmed, knowing he's he's had a long, long career in government service, in private practice, and had previously served as chair of the CFTC. I think he brings a great experience base and a strong skill set to the chairman's role. When he was the chair of the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, he oversaw the process of establishing the derivative trading systems that Dodd-Frank required and built those regulations with a strong perspective on investor protection. He's, as you said, he has a, a wealth of experience in the whole government service world, but he's also been at MIT talking and, and lecturing about financial technology. And I think that's a key skill set to bring to the commission because the commission needs to incorporate those kinds of tools in the regulatory process to be an effective regulator in this market. The volatility in the last month or so is a great example of needing those tools to try to understand what the heck is going on out there. And when you look at how much of the trading has actually been off the exchanges in kind of the black pool, the black market kind of place, how do you regulate that? I think that's a great skill set that he'll bring to that process. I also look at some of the things that he did in the implementation of the derivatives trading systems that were required by Dodd-Frank. And he, he built a fair set of principles. And I'm kind of hoping, uh, and I would say expecting at this point, that he'll, he'll stay with the foundationally principles-based approach to regulation that we've seen in the last several years. And I think as professionals, we're pretty good with principles. I, I would point to the way companies implemented the new accounting standard for revenue recognition, ASC 606, very principles-based standard. You know, the standard itself is very short, and companies did a pretty reasonable job of putting it in place. I think the commission did a good job of kind of asking questions about implementation and helping people fine tune, but I think people did a really good job. I would say, though, that the way the new administration will probably work once he's confirmed as chair, they'll probably keep the foundational principles, but I think what they'll do is establish more guardrails, put in more sort of examples and limits on what companies can do as they follow those principles. That's that's what I'm expecting to see based on how he worked at the CFTC. And I'm really excited about the, the financial technology background that he brings to that role, because that's obviously a key issue in how the markets are regulated today. I, I agree with all of that, George, and, and particularly how uh, a chairman Gensler would deal with principles-based rules. It's uh, it's something that I've been writing and talking a lot about. And you know, my take has been, look, if, if you leave him a legacy of principles-based rules, um, he gets to decide what they mean. And I think we're going to see that with an, with a number of uh, sort of hot button rules that came out of the Clayton Commission, including Chris, can you say it with me? Reg BI. Oh, Reg um, BI. <laughs> there it yep. is. I, I look forward to that every time, guys. You know, you got to hang in there until it lands. Um, You're the only one, George. <laughs> 
okay. So, you know, a, apart from uh, from the Gary Gensler nomination, uh, there, of course, are some other seats that are starting to get filled, if only in an acting capacity. You know, we've mentioned that Allison Heron Lee is now the acting chair of the SEC. Um, we saw Melissa Hodgman was named acting director of the Division of Enforcement recently. I know Chris wants to talk about Paul Munter being appointed as the acting chief accountant. Uh, but before, <laughs> before we get to that, there's been an awful lot uh, in the media recently about Professor John Coates, who has been named acting director of the SEC's Division of Corporate Finance or Corp Fin. Um, he was a professor of law and economics at Harvard University before switching over to the commission. It seems to be a pretty popular pick, but George, I don't know. What's your take on Mr. Coates' appointment? I think it's interesting him starting as acting director and it'll be interesting to see if he is put in the position uh, permanently. He, he's got a big law background with Wachtell Lipton and specialized in M&A work and did a lot of securities work in, in that world. So he's got a good foundation of experience. He's also done an enormous amount of consulting for government agencies and the stock exchanges. I don't know very much about the perspective he will bring as a regulator. But I think his experience in the market is going to be a good foundation to build on. And I'm really looking forward to seeing the process that he builds for Corp Fin. You know, one of the people who's been a stalwart in the Corp Fin world, Shelley Peratt, has retired now. Mm -hmm. And so I think there'll be more changes uh, in how it's managed and, and how it operates. And it'll be interesting to see how all that plays out. That's about as much as, as I can say right now without being totally speculative. Well, that's what the podcast is for, George. Don't let us hold you back from being completely speculative. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Then I would speculate that we'll see more principles-based rules in more areas and I would also speculate, I think we'll see a greater focus on information outside the financial statements. I'm excited to kind of follow that track. But to, to Kurt's point, accounting really underpins all of this. And, and we need to speak about uh, Paul Munter stepping into the role of, of acting chief accountant and, and George, you know, leaning very hard into what every you know, accountant's favorite clickbait topic will be is convergence. And for those of you who don't know, and for our legal friends here, Convergence has long been a kind of a, a mythical beast out there in, in the woods that accountants have talked about, and that taking the uh, generally accepted accounting principles here in the United States uh, and having them merge or converge with the International Accounting Standards Board and the, the IFRS uh, reporting standards that are used internationally. So the reason we bring this up related to, to Mr. Munter is that he's served in a unique position since 2019 as the Deputy Chief Accountant for International Activities with the Office of the Chief Accountant. So for me, this, this could be the alignment uh, of, of all of the you know, powers that be to make convergence happen. But George, am I, am I too far out over my skis on this? Do we think we're going to have a unified uh, financial reporting framework internationally? Uh, what kind of time frame do you want to assign to that? <laughs> <laughs> you know us accountants, we move quick, George. So probably next six months, uh, right? We'll say Next that. six months. Well, I'm thinking about you know the FASB's revenue recognition project, which I think started when I originally began teaching workshops full-time in about the year 2000. Uh, 
mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. went final sometime in around 2014, I think it was. Super quick. Super yeah, quick. That, with that kind of like, you know, urgent time frame, <laughs> I think that it is inevitable that at some point in time, there's going to have to be a global set of accounting standards. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think that Paul brings a great perspective to this. I've known Paul for, oh gosh, well, probably 15 or 20 years. He's got an enormous wealth of experience. But what I think he brings to the party is, as the chief accountant right now, is a very down-to-earth, common-sense approach to things. And so he gets things done. I think it's going to be delightful to watch him in his acting role. And I'm really, I'm hoping that they make him the permanent chief accountant as, as time goes on. But I think that when you get specifically to convergence, while I don't think it will ha- happen quickly, I think it will be something that he focuses on. But I think he'll be a, an advocate of let's try to get as close as we can. Speaking of uh, difficult accounting standards, I think this is a good time to talk about ESG. Um, <laughs> it's another one of those areas where I think a lot of very smart people are working hard to try to figure out what a uniform disclosure regime uh, or framework would look like. Uh, there are several topics in the SECI's quarterly newsletter this quarter that relate to environmental, social, and governance. That's ESG, in case we forgot to say it earlier, uh, disclosure and metrics. One of the topics that's been pretty widely covered by the press is a letter from BlackRock CEO Larry Fink that asks companies to report, quote, in alignment with the recommendations for the task force on climate-related financial disclosure and the sustainability accounting standards board. Essentially, he's asking companies to to make better ESG disclosures. What do you think about this, George? Is this a sea change in ESG reporting? Should we expect to see these disclosures coming out from large public issuers? You know, I think we will see change. I don't know if it'll be sea change. Maybe it'll be lake change. <laughs> um, I think... I th- <laughs> Slow-moving creek change. Oh, man. Slow-moving creek change. No, I. it's clearly happening. It's clearly happening. I mean, M- Mr. Fink's letter is a follow-on from his letter from last year. There are a, a, a wealth of other organizations that are pushing ESG disclosures. In other parts of the world, it's becoming much more common to see these, these kinds of disclosures. The International Business Council of the World Economic Forum uh, actually put together a sort of a start for a framework. I think this is coming. It's impossible to deny. It's actually, I think, two or three quarters ago that we started adding ESG topics to the newsletter because they were rising and elevating in visibility. This is going to happen. I think we've all got to grapple with that. I think if you're a large multinational corporation, you need to think about it sooner rather than later. And, you know, more localized companies probably need to think about this. But it's pretty clear when you look at the way that large funds are investing, they're experiencing better results in the long term when they put these kinds of factors into their investment decisions. I think you're you're right. It is it is absolutely coming. 
And in addition to the letters from Larry Fink, we're actually seeing perhaps some evidence out of the SEC that they are going to uh, maybe bring about that change or, or certainly focus on it more. We've talked a little bit about what's going on in the acting chair's office. One of the things she did recently was name uh, some new members of her staff, which included Satyam Khanna, who we've talked about on the show before. Uh, Mr. Khanna left NYU where he was a professor of law, and he is now the senior policy advisor for climate and ESG. Again, I think signaling that the SEC is going to be taking a look at this. I know that acting chair Heron Lee has been focused on climate risk and related disclosure issues for a long time. George, what do you think is the significance or, or potential impact of, of this appointment? Can, uh, can Satyam Khanna bring about some change? In short, I believe the answer to that question is yes. He most recently was a law professor, but he has, a, again, a long resume of service in the government realm and in other parts of the world, and has clearly worked effectively in different kinds of organizations. And, and his charge is to work across all the offices and divisions at the commission to bring ESG issues into the thought process. So I think it's a cultural shift at the commission yeah. with the change in leadership to focus more on these longer term kinds of inputs. I think you said it earlier, though, coming up with a set of consistent standards is going to be a real challenge, even with the World Economic Forum's International Business Council sort of framework that I mentioned earlier. And the, the things that the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board has been doing, it's very challenging because things are very industry specific. So about two years ago, we did a series of blog posts about ESG issues. And one really simple issue, you know, think about water conservation if you're a beverage company. We looked at the way Coke talked about sustainability issues with respect to water and the way Pepsi talked about sustainability issues with respect to water. And there was no real basis for comparison. You, it was an apples and oranges kind of thing. Now, that was a couple of years ago. But building standards so that people can compare from one entity to another is a really challenging process. And I'm hoping that Mr. Kana can sort of spearhead that process in his role at the commission. We've talked a bit about some of the emerging issues we see. That does not mean that the commission has, has stopped looking into and, and updating our understanding and guidance related to existing issues. So let's get into my favorite acronym that we talk about here on Insecurities, MDNA. Management's Discussion and Analysis. You'll recall in our last conversation back in September with George, we, we talked about the changes in the MDNA section proposed and approved by the SEC regarding selected financial data and supplementary financial information. Unfortunately for me, we were kind of guessing on whether the implementation of some of these SEC rules would, would happen on time or not. I said this would definitely be delayed. There'd be too much, uh, too much to do and, and too much to focus on to make sure it happened on time. Uh, I know Kurt sent me a, a text on the morning of February 10th just to remind me that uh, the MDNA uh, guidance update uh, was implemented as expected. <laughs> I, I, I've got your uh, back, Chris. I've got that's your right. back. Yeah, always, always getting those cheap shots in. So, George, can you give us a, a brief refresh on the MDNA update rule and, and talk to us a bit about what you see as the implications of those changes going forward? That is 
a great way of talking about the uncertainty we all had to live with there for a while. And I love the way you guys are. Thanks so for mutual. the get out there, George. Yeah. <laughs> Makes me feel a little better. <laughs> now, I was kind of on the on the knife edge about that one being delayed or not. I'm actually pretty glad it wasn't delayed because I think it's a good rule. The rule actually is affecting three regulation SK items. SK301, which is the five-year summary, just goes away. It's gone. Uh, SK302, which is the two years of quarterly information, is significantly modified. You only need to present that information if it's been materially retrospectively adjusted. And then the MDNA changes, while they seem fairly numerous and voluminous, I don't think change things that much. Um, they, they add an objective paragraph to SK item 303, which really is very consistent with the previous guidance for the objective of MDNA that was in Financial Release 36 and Financial Release 72, makes a big emphasis point of the forward-looking nature, the prospective nature of MDNA. They also made it more crisp in that objective that you need to talk about changes in both qualitative and quantitative terms. I think it significantly clarifies and expands the guidance for the liquidity and capital resources discussion. You need to explain what are your cash requirements? You need to say where the money's going to come from to meet those requirements and have a clear conclusion as to whether your liquidity will be adequate to meet your requirements or you're going to have to raise money. The transition to the rules comes in two parts. There's a voluntary transition and a mandatory transition. So the voluntary transition is you can implement SK item by SK item after the effective date. And as you said, it went effective on the 10th. So if you're filing a 10K today, you can kick out SK item 301 and leave out the quarterly information, implement those two requirements voluntarily and not do anything to your MDNA yet. So I, I think those are things to think about. I think both of those disclosure requirements don't add a lot of material information. Anybody can get five years worth of information yeah. from a variety of sources today. The mandatory transition date, though, is your fiscal year end that ends 200 or after 210 days after the effective date. So August 9th is the date. Your fiscal year end that ends after August 9th this year is when you have to implement. So we won't be seeing the broad differences that this change allows, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in this earnings period, uh, definitely no. next year for sure. Yeah. I think a lot of companies and a lot of people that I spoke with were pretty anxious to get rid of the five-year summary. And then the reconsideration of recently enacted rules, edict came out of the White House and they stepped back from that. Otherwise, I think we would have seen a fair number of companies kick out the five-year summary. All right, let's turn away from MDNA and talk a little bit about our favorite four-letter word here on the Insecurities Podcast, SPAC. Uh, that, that was not the word I was thinking of. <laughs> <laughs> Still a pretty hot word. Yeah, yeah, hot yeah. Word. yeah. Uh, it's a special purpose acquisition company, again, for those playing acronym BINGO at home. Um, SPACs have been 
all over the news for the last year or so. A ton of them went to market last year. And Corp Fin seems to be paying a lot of attention to this space. And in fact, they issued a disclosure guidance topic 11 that relates to SPACs just back in December. Um, it focuses on IPOs and business combinations in particular. George, what are your key takeaways from topic 11? This is the hottest topic in the world of SEC activity right now, period. You know, the thing that's interesting about these deals is they've been around for years and years and years, but they were always sort of, um, what's the right word, murky, because a lot of them were deals that were a little, I don't want to say shady, but iffy. They were risky deals. When you offer to sell stock and raise cash and put the money in a trust account that you're going to use to buy another company later, who's in charge? Who's doing what? They were never they were never really kind of well accepted. But then a whole bunch of people, people who were, for example, retired CFOs or retired CEOs from companies that had done very well and were kind of looking for their next chapter, they started to find this SPAC vehicle where they could actually do an IPO of a company, raise $200 million, put that money into a trust account, and then go look for a company to buy. And you might ask, well, why would they want to do this? Well, the reason is as a sponsor or one of the founders of a SPAC, you structure these things so that you end up with a significant portion of the public company as it emerges. They're marvelously lucrative for the people Mm -hmm. who build these things. And I think that's the big issue behind Disclosure Guidance Topic 11, making sure that as you bring your SPAC public, and so the SPAC IPOs, it raises money, puts a whole bunch of money in a big trust account. And if you're not real familiar with SPACs, you've got to, although who isn't familiar with them today, but just in case, (laughs) you've got a limited time horizon to find an acquisition candidate. Usually it's two years, year and a half, two years. You sometimes have the opportunity to extend that. But if if you've got that two-year window, first, when you're one of the founders or sponsors, what are your incentives in the SPAC? You know, what are your possible upsides in terms of what you're going to make? Make sure the people who are going to buy stock in the SPAC and the initial IPO understand that, that they understand how much you're going to get because you're going to get a lot if you're a sponsor. And by the way, there can also be conflicts of interest between the sponsors and the SPAC and what it's eventually going to do. That should all be robustly disclosed. Then when you're in the process of searching for an acquisition target, could there potentially be conflicts of interest between the sponsors and the target? You know, if the target is someone the sponsors know, that could be a little dicey. And then making sure that as the deal progresses, investors understand in the acquisition process that there could be a need for additional financing. And then what are the financial incentives for the sponsors with that particular target? And I think at some of the early SPAC deals, uh, it was unclear and it wasn't very obvious 
what the founders and the sponsors stood to gain and how much that was going to be compared to what the shareholders who put it put money into the IPO gained in those transactions. So I think there was need for clarification here. Yeah. And we're going to see more and more of these deals come along. These have become, because of the volume and the quality of the sponsors, a significant source of competition to the traditional IPO. The one thing I love about SPAC deals is that they totally run on adrenaline. I mean, they happen at a pace that is mind-numbing. And so it's controlled chaos for several months mm-hmm. when you do one of these mm-hmm. deals. And you can tell I'm pretty fired up about it. We're actually, <laughs> we're, we're actually putting together a conference that's going to be on April 20th, an all-day program, uh, the SPAC from start to finish about the SPAC life cycle. No, that's awesome. Listeners should definitely tune in to that webinar and learn all about SPACs. Obviously, George is excited, so I know it's going to be a good program. Switching gears here a bit, I want to talk a bit about our favorite um, regulatory body over the audit world, the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, or the PCAOB. <laughs> finally, finally. That's right. I mean, I know there are hundreds, if not thousands of people waiting to, to hear us talk about the PCAOB on this episode. <laughs> Two key points I want to bring up, uh, you know, before Kurt tossing it back to you. There's been some change in leadership at the PCAOB in the past few months. Uh, J. Robert Brown has completed his term serving on the board as of January 2021. And actually, we had one of his staff uh, join us back in episode 17 to discuss the PCAOB, Robert Peak. There's been some discussion about the budget for the PCOB coming up in, in the upcoming year, in which uh, the budget itself has gone up by a, a small amount, a single percentage point, but the accounting support fee itself has decreased by uh, you know, just short of $10 million. So, uh, George, just want to hear your comments on where the PCAOB is from a leadership perspective, as well as what those budgetary implications might be. I think that is a really good question. And I don't know that we'll be able to answer that question until the new commission is in place. I think the board has been going through a process of introspection and asking about their mission and how they accomplish their mission and trying to refine that. There's a complexity to this process that I think is hard to understand. Regulating the audit process. So, if if you're an auditor, here's my favorite question to ask an auditor. So, I'll ask a, a recovering auditor here. How do you know when your audit is done? <laughs> what a trap, George! What a trap. <laughs> when you have uh, it, it provided reasonable assurance that the uh, financial statements are presented are without material misstatement. Yeah, when you. When you've gathered, yes, exactly right. You have to have sufficient, competent, evidential matter to do exactly what you said. Is Kurt? Are you still awake, or did that that put you to sleep? So what? Um, yeah. So Kurt, Kurt. Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. Okay. I mean, this is a it's a very subjective process. It's not a mechanical process. It's so much judgment, and trying to regulate judgment is very complex. The inspection process, I think, has helped bring some light to what's going on. But I think that the issue with the board is going to be on transparency in what they do, why they do what they do. And I, I think there'll be some evolution here. Um, the One of the things that's interesting about the way the board is built, and it's always been kind of a conundrum to me, is when the Sarbanes-Oxley Act established the PCAOB, uh, by law, no more than um, two of the five board members can be accountants. Mm -hmm. And 
historically, some of the accountants who've been on the board haven't even been auditors. The last board had some auditors on it uh, who, who had worked in with large multinational audit firms. Um, you know, I think it's a very challenging mission, and I'm, I'm hoping that with the change in leadership that the mission will become clearer in terms of how to regulate the boards. And one of the things I, I, I think will help in that regard is the focus on firm quality control systems and the new quality control standards that come along with that. You know, it's kind of the ICFR for the audit firm. Yeah. And I, I'm probably being a little Pollyannish when I say that. But I've always been a cup is half full kind of person. Although sometimes I say th- I think maybe that's the wrong cup. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I think the process needs to happen, and I, I think the next uh, topic uh, to think about there is the conversations with audit committees that the board has had, mm. and they they published an interesting report about their 2020 conversations with audit committee chairs. One of the things that they talked about in this report about conversations with audit committee chairs is how well auditors communicated with audit committees. And one of the pieces of that conversation I found fascinating was that some auditors are actually providing an audit dashboard to their audit committees so that they can kind of see how the audit process is progressing. And that tells me that they're, they're being willing to share a little bit more about what's going on in the audit process and that audit committees are putting better oversight over that process. And I think that longer term is how you get better audits. You get the company and the audit committee involved, not making audit judgments, but tracking with the process. Then the inspection process, who knows where that will go. Yeah, recent statements from from the board have been focused on more randomly selected issuers uh, for inspection in the coming years. So a little bit ominous uh, for those out there uh, wondering if they're going to be up for inspection or not. Very ominous and probably a good thing. You know, I think one of the things they've asked audit committees is, do you see your auditors adapting to the inspection process? And I think the answer has been yes. I think if they strategically redirect the inspection process and turn it into a risk-based look where the big problems are and identify those, that makes it a more effective process. Audit efficiency is tough to get your arms around. Audit effectiveness is even tougher to get your arms around. That's why I started with the question, how do you know when your audit's done? That's right. <laughs> you, you never know. You never know. I mean, you could audit forever. But that's the idea. An audit involves testing a sample of transactions, reperformance being one of kind of test. You can't redo everything. But where are the critical judgments? Where are the really tough things that the auditor has to look at? Where are the big risks of misstatement? And I think focusing on risk assessment and quality control could help with that. But that's me. That's me. I think you you hit on a good point, too, there with transparency. And the publication of that Conversations with Audit Committee Chair's report seems to be right in in line with that, right, George? Here's what we're actually hearing from from the Audit Committee Chairs, and and here's how we're going to interpret it and share that with the broader audit market. George, similar to how an auditor could go on forever auditing, so too I know the three of us could continue (laughs) this conversation well well into into the evening hours if needed. But I want to pause here and and any final thoughts, George, on on what we see for this this newsletter and, and what's coming up? Up from from the SCCI? 
I think we're going to see the pace of change accelerate, and I think we'll see a focus on disclosures outside the financial statements. And tell us more about the ESG issues within your business. And I think we'll also see more rules with guardrails, but still based on principles. We look forward to talking about all of those things on the next time we can get you on, George. Thanks so much for joining us again. Thank you again for the chance to be here, guys. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guest, George Wilson at the SEC Institute with PLI. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA, And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. PLI, Troutman Pepper, and RSM do not make any representations or warranties, express or implied, regarding the contents of this podcast. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.